Welcome back to The Conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. Ka'ena Point is a step closer to becoming Hawaii's first National Heritage Area. President Joe Biden recently signed the National Heritage Area Act. It authorizes the Secretary of the Interior, in consultation with the state of Hawaii, to begin a study to determine how best to protect a remote and wild area on Oahu's northwest point, which stretches across to Mokulea'ia and includes the Ka'ena Natural Area Preserve. Our Hana Ho show originally aired on January 20th, and we won't be taking any calls today. It's a great day to be running this show because biologists tell us this will be the first day when the Kaena albatross are hatching. Seabird hatchlings will be breaking out of their shells. So here's to new beginnings. Today, our guests in our studio are Congressman Ed Case, who introduced legislation along with U.S. Representative Kai Kahele for increased protections for Kaena. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It's <laughs> great to be here and to talk about this. And also in studio today is William Isla, former director of the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources, who has family ties to the land. He just retired as the Director of Hawaiian Homelands. Aloha. Aloha. Good morning, Catherine. So glad you could be here, too. Wonderful. Thank you for driving in. No problem. <laughs> yeah. And we also have Lindsay Young with Pacific Rim Conservation, who has worked tending to our wildlife, our albatross colonies that call Ka'ena home. A young was the project coordinator for the Ka'ena Point Ecosystem Restoration Project and has worked out there for two decades. So <laughs> welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, you know, let's start with Congressman Case. I mean, we still need the president's okay on this measure, but what would this do? Well, first of all, the president's already signed oh, it. Oh, he signed it. Oh, yeah. This, oh, this happened gosh. a couple of weeks ago. I did so, not know that. Um, well, the, the bill itself is law now, so we're we're clear and the study is, is underway. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so tell us, well, what does this involve? Will this mean then additional money we can tap into? Well, this is a good story about how government actually can work at all levels because in this and with partners uh, such as Lindsay, I think that the genesis of this particular law now actually came when I went back to Congress in 2019 and I got appointed to the House Appropriations Committee, which is responsible for all federal funding. And I also was appointed to the House Natural Resources Committee, which is responsible for all um, you know federal lands, federal protections, our environmental laws. And um, I asked myself the question, how can I use these two great committees uh, to Hawaii's advantage? And one of the areas that uh, I started to discuss with state and county government and our partners in the private sector was we have in our federal system of land protection many different designations of protections for primarily federal, but not exclusively federal lands. Um, the most well-known, obviously, is our national parks. Uh, and, you know, those are the, the, the crown jewels of, of our country, um, the very original American invention. And I support our national parks every which way I possibly can. In fact, we just got close to $10 million appropriated in the last bill, which was just signed in the last couple of weeks to try to expand Haleakala National Park, for example. And so we've got national parks, we've got national, uh, you know, national forests, we've got national seashores, we've got a lot of designations that fit various needs and fit various conditions. And two of those are national heritage areas and national forests. And so I basically asked the question, um, what do we not have in Hawaii that we should have in Hawaii? And as it turned out, um, we did not have any national heritage areas in our state, and we didn't have any national forests. And so in 2019, I introduced a bill to change that. And in the case of the National Heritage Area side of that, came back and consulted with folks in, in the local community and said, well, what really fits the bill of a National Heritage Area, which is a very unique designation under federal law, uh, which is intended to honor the, the and, and respect and steward, I think that's the best uh, word for it, co-steward, the unique historical, cultural, environmental, and natural characteristics of, of places. And and we took a look around the state, and Ka'ena Point was way up at the top of that list in terms of fitting all of those categories. And we'll get into the details of that, I'm sure, with the folks that know better than me at the table with me here. Um, and so uh, we, we, we put that bill in. I didn't get it done the first Congress. Uh, but the second Congress, um, we, we came back. I introduced it with Congressman Kaheli. 
Um, our two senators were also interested, so especially Senator Hirono, who, who also serves on the, the counterpart uh, Senate committee, uh, was very helpful in particular. Uh, from this perspective, and we just started to grind it, and we we had um, I got I got back on natural resources. I I used my appropriations for a little bit of leverage, in all honesty, um, and and um, um, had a full-on hearing on, on this particular bill. Had had uh, people from the State Department of Land and Natural Resources testify. We went out to talk to the community out there uh, to talk with the neighborhood board, make sure it was okay with them, make sure that they felt involved, and that this was not somehow going to usurp or damage uh, their particular uh, stewardship of, of and appoint. Um, and um, what sometimes happens in Congress, it, this happens more than you might expect. You put a lot of things in the hopper and you work really, really hard to get them done. And sometimes you don't get them done in a particular Congress they carry over. And sometimes you don't know until the last minute that mm -hmm. you're gonna get them done. Um, and in December, this one popped because wow. we, um, were, we, because we were working on kind of a big picture and. Uh, uh, bill and we were able to kind of, you know, maneuver this right. one into well, into place. And well, by the way, we also got the National Forest, Forest Study, right. uh, which is really exciting. So that's the that's the history of this particular um, law, and and I can get into the details of it, but I'd, I'd rather give my other guests. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm thrilled that the president signed it because I thought he was too busy with the the floods in California. <laughs> but that's great. That's great news. <laughs> and William, you have a personal connection with Ka'ana Point. Share with our listeners what that is. Sure, sure. So. My great-great-grandfather, uh, Kamakahiki Aila, actually was born out there. And his son, my great-grandfather, Louis Johnson Aila, was also raised out there. So they have family had land in Koahapai, which is the Opua adjacent to it. But they also had um, royal patents that were closer to Kaena. All of my, my tutu's um, umbilical cords are actually in Pohaku O'ahu, which is the second Pohaku closest to shore from Puaku o Kauai. So we have a long um, personal relationship with Kaena Point, uh, many, many stories of how to responsibly gather marine resources there. Um, and uh, within Kauai to use the water there that is uh, scarce, because it comes from one spring, to use it responsibly and sustainably. So very, very important to me. And then, of course, I was fortunate enough to become the chair of uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources. So the point itself, the NARS, the Natural Air Reserve, is surrounded by state parks on both sides. Um, had the privilege of seeing the predator-proof fence constructed, Took a lot of heat from some of my friends for it, but it was the right decision to do. And today there are many, many more birds that Lindsay will talk about and many more endangered and threatened uh, plants uh, in one of the two remaining coastal uh, sand dune ecosystems. So it's also um, important because uh, of the Lena Kauhane that uh, resides there. It was. You know, it's, it's, it's a cultural biological reserve, um, and in recognition of the cultural side and uh, the Lena, a third gate was actually put in, just uh, Makai, excuse me, Mauka of, of the Lena uh, to acknowledge Kupuna and the souls that uh, come to the Lena in order to leap uh, and meet their ancestors and go to Po. So well, th well thought out, well-rounded, um, conservation, culturally appropriate project. Right, because you want to protect the archaeological sites that are there besides all the native fauna and wildlife. And, and acknowledge the, the folks that have, have been there, lived there, passed away there. So. And this predator fence, this was the first in the country? Yes. So I don't know, who wants to take this, Lindsay? <laughs> She's got the most history with it. Sure. So I've had the privilege of working at Kaena. This is actually my 20th year. I started as a graduate student wanting to study albatross, and most albatross <coughs> in the world live thousands of miles away, and these were super close. And so started studying them and realized that there was a wealth of information and opportunity in this area. And something that I feel most people don't realize is Kaena is not one of the last coastal dune ecosystems. It's one of the first restored. And I think it's really important 
important to acknowledge all of the work that's gone in over the last 30 to 40 years, you know, when that road was closed off, to get it to the point where it was, because it still had some endangered plants hanging on, but there were actually no seabirds. So the first seabirds started nesting there in 1994. We had one to two albatrosses, a couple wedge-tailed shearwaters. And they started to go up once vehicles were excluded. When predators were starting to be controlled in the early 2000s, they went up again. But there's only a certain level of kind of predator control you can do because things can always come back in. And that was sort of the impetus for the predator exclusion fence. And these are meant to keep out anything mammalian. So if you think of Hawaii before people got here, there's nothing furry if you think about it. So no cats, dogs, rats, mongoose, none of that was there. And our plants and animals, uh, which were primarily birds, a bat, and seals, evolved without any defenses. So as soon as they come in, um, a lot of our native birds and plants just can't cope with all of these. And so the fence was meant to be a way to fully protect the whole ecosystem, not just the birds where you know you might control cats or mongoose, but also the plants. So rats will chew these plants down so they can't produce keiki. And so we started documenting all of the impacts of everything and then realized once the fence went up that things started increasing exponentially. So it's been enormously satisfying you know, on a personal level as well as a professional one to see what these things truly can do for conservation in Hawaii. And you just shared with us prior to going on air that we have some keiki that you've been able to transplant over to Papahanao <laughs> Makukea. Yeah, so it's interesting. We sort of have this two-way translocation thing going on with Papahanao Makukea, Marine National Monument, and Kaena Point, because we've removed the rodents from the area or they're in such low density that they don't impact it now, all of our sandalwood, our ohai, all of those things are producing fruits and seedlings, which before would have been chewed by rats. And the overflow of seeds, because there's now so many, are actually collected and brought up to the monument to aid in restoration efforts there. So Kaena is actually serving as a source for other areas within Hawaii, which is really neat. So it's a great success story. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things, just to kind of go back to the basics on, is is the the the, the environmental importance of Kaena Point to the albatross and mm-hmm. why this is very special to the albatross, which is an incredible part of our ecosystem, our marine e- ecosystem. And maybe you know, yes. I can I can kind of do the layman's, but you can you can do it better than me. Like this is the only place they net, one of the only places they nest and. And when they come in to land after a year out at sea, they have to have a safe place to do it. Yeah, oh, careful. I could go on all day about these guys. Um, But albatrosses are the most threatened group of birds globally. And Kaena Point is one of only three sites in the world for any albatross species that you can go up and the only site where the public can see them 24-7 without restriction, just relying on the honor system, which most people abide by pretty nicely out there. But these species in particular, Lezan albatross or moli in Hawaiian, um, are really threatened by sea level rise at this point. So 99% of Lezan albatross nest within Papahanaumokuakea, and their islands are eroding away rapidly. And so as sea level rises, it's more and more important to have high islands for these species that can serve as refuges. And so if you think of our main eight Hawaiian islands, um, they're all high enough to withstand sea level rise as far as an albatross is concerned, but our coastline are really developed. So a lot of people say, well, all the birds will figure it out. They'll go somewhere else. That could be somebody else's front lawn that might not want them there, that might have a cat or a dog that they want to keep in their yard. And so having these protected coastal ecosystems where these species that are being threatened in other parts of their range can call home is critically important for the long-term survival of them. And you said you were just out there Friday. So how many birds are we talking about? How many uh, nests? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of a tough number. So we have 97 nests this year, and 97 nests means obviously you know about 200 adult birds, but only about half of the birds are on the ground at any given time. So we have a population of about four to 500 albatrosses, which keep in mind went from zero to four to 500. These birds live for 70 plus years. They're the longest lived species in the world and they only start breeding when they're eight. So it's actually quite incredible that we have that many. Um, And we actually have 13,000 wedge-tailed shearwater nests out there. So from zero to 13,000 in, you know, a 35-year period is kind of astonishing. And that number in particular, albatrosses have steadily increased over time. The wedge-tailed shearwaters went exponential as soon as the fence went up. We had think about two to three thousand pairs and maybe 300 chicks that came out of that the year we did the fence so if you look at 300 chicks out of 3,000 only 10 percent of them are getting a chick each year because a lot of those chicks were eaten 
and it doubled the first year, it doubled the next year, and then it kind of plateaued, and then doubled again in 2020. So we went really, it exceeded our expectations beyond anything we could have imagined in terms of the benefit to the birds. I just remember, you know, being out there for the first time, I took my kids and we were just so amazed at how close you could get to see, you know, the, the, the albatross there. And she talked about the, Lindsay talked about the wedge-tailed shearwaters. I mean, that's my favorite bird. Because okay. when I'm 30, 40 miles offshore and I see a flock of seabirds that's mainly composed of the uaukane, mm-hmm. that tells me that the, the likelihood of ahi being under that pile <laughs> increases exponentially also. There you because go. there's, when you see them playing just by themselves all together, your heart starts racing, and you wait for the outrigger to come down and the pole to start screaming. Okay. So they're very important birds to people like me who fish offshore. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember when you first <laughs> went out there in Sakaeta Point? Um, I've, I've been going out there in a variety of uh, fashions over a long period of time. Not all of them particularly good, because uh, when I was growing up, um, you know, I, I think we're maybe comparable, uh, William. Um, uh, we used to just go out there and camp, and and you know uh, that was back in the days when in a point was not respected in any way, shape, or form. Not only did the um, you know the feral cat, the cats and every the the mammals, as you say, prevent any um, uh, you know birds from from being able to land there safe, but we were doing most of the damage. I mean, that mm-hmm. was back in the days when that was like when you, that's where you went out there with your motocross bike and your big tired trucks Ouch. and you just ripped the, the holy bejesus out of the place. <laughs> okay. I didn't do that, but you know, I went out there on, you know, my car and you know, whatever kind right. of car it was, we all thought we could drive around the point and we couldn't, but we got stuck and somebody had to pull us out. So those, you know, those were days before stewardship, before we were again respecting the environment, before we appreciated the cultural significance of kind of point, um, before we understood ecosystem interactions, before right. we had any protections at all. So yeah, the, it's a wild west is what it was. Yeah, but thank goodness that we have those protections and, now. And, um, you know, uh, we, we, we got the better of that and, and um, they were good days, don't get me wrong. You go <laughs> out there and, you know, camp and go anywhere and you go, nobody, you know, other people were out there but right. it was kind of like where you went when you wanted to get away from anything on this island. And so we, my, my friends and I would go out there and, you know, camp and do a right. fire yeah. and, you know, watch the stars. It was really, really nice. But now um, we know better. But now we know better. <laughs> okay. That's exactly right. And so, I, you know, I've seen that. And then, of course, I've, I've seen, um, you know, the, 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 the increased appreciation of um, cultural significance for Kenna Point or the, I guess I would say, the renewed appreciation of it because, of course, um, Native Hawaiians appreciated it perfectly well before anybody else came along, and and um, also the environmental significance, especially as Lindsay has talked about with the the threats in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. So you know, then you've got that kind of uh, and and the state, to its credit, um, set up the first protections out there. So right, right. you know, DLNR and and uh, uh, William and his uh, I don't know if it happened before you at all, but certainly after you, they followed through. Yeah. Um, they created their own kind of point stewardship area um, to to try to. And, and so the National Heritage Area is supposed to complement all of that. Okay. It's not supposed to replace it. It's supposed to take the sum total of, of what is already there being handled in various different ways and try to, try to coordinate all of that. All right, well, hold that thought because we've got to go to break. If you're just joining the conversation, you're listening to a rebroadcast of our Colin show where we focused on Kaena Point and the push to have it designated a natural heritage area, the very first in Hawaii. We aren't taking any calls, but if you have a story or an idea to share, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Stay with us. We'll be right back in a few minutes.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. This week on Science Friday, why the treaty regulating endangered species was so important. Governments and, and conservationists got together and said, it's a free-for-all. There were no international rules at all, and they said, we need rules, we need regulation. 50 years of CITES on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Just joining the conversation, we're talking about Ka'ena Point and the fact that uh, it is now a national heritage area, the first in Hawaii. We have with us Congressman Ed Case, a former state land director, William Isla, and Lindsay Young with Pacific Rim Conservation. And Congressman, you talked about driving your car in there in your younger days. I mean, that was a popular area for, for off-roading, even though you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> Totally. I mean, it was, and that was the problem. It, there was no stewardship. And it was commonly accepted that that's what people did. And, and I, I don't think any of us, I mean, I look back on, on it and I can see the damage that was that was done. I don't want that to happen anymore. And of course, we have it well under, I think, well under control now. Um, I think, um, uh, you know, the the um, community uh, itself around kind of point on both sides, um, you know, it's it's not cool to do that anymore, right? So, um, you know, there's there's some community pressure not to do it as well as just it's not it's against the law to do it. So, still, um, special areas like that, you you always have to be looking for kind of the next generation of how you actually protect it. And a key part of this is uh, funds mm -hmm. to do it with. And and um, you know, William can can testify to this much more than me, but um, I mean, the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, for all that it handles throughout our entire state, it's got a minuscule budget. Yeah, it's ridiculous how, how, how little it's funded for the responsibilities that it carries. And so um, I, th I think the figure that they're putting into uh, stewardship right now at kind of point is somewhere around 200, 250,000, um, which, is, which is money well spent, but it's nowhere near enough to actually um, sponsor all of these activities from, from uh, you know, environmental protection to um, cultural preservation and interpretation. So what kind of uh, federal so funding federal, are we talking about? We do, the National Heritage Area um, designation does come with federal funding. It's usually on a one-to-one -one match, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a one-to-one -one match. You can jack it up a little bit higher uh, in certain circumstances. So even if we're able to double that budget by you know, up to 500,000, I mean, the goal would be maybe 750,000 a year, which would take care of most of what we uh, need to do out there. Okay, well, we do have a caller on the line, Todd from Kaka'ako. Good morning. Yes, aloha. Aloha. What's on your mind? Oh, I just want to thank the agencies involved in the community and, and also, I guess, the congressman, because as a longtime Kama'aina, I hadn't done the hike for over a decade. And uh, I went out last year and I was pleasantly shocked at how well it had improved since the 90s when, like you said, it was basically a sand-covered parking lot and uh, rubbish heap. <laughs> I would definitely say it's one of the stellar improvements that I've seen it on Oahu in the last 30 years, really. I just want to give my kokua and mahalo. So. Well, great. Thank, thank you, you so much, Todd. No, I was to say thank you for acknowledging that and and for sharing your history and, you know, the fact that it has improved. I mean, that's, that's what we leave to the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. The kuleana to continue with that protection and to increase it um, so graciously is as representative cases looking for additional funds and additional protections for that area. I mean, that's that's what we learned. We learned that we shouldn't have done those things and we should 
be very active in the restoration of areas like Kaena Point. Well, this is a, a perfect time to acknowledge those many hands who over the years have worked to protect Kaena Point. It includes a hiker who last year went above and beyond the call of duty to remove a rusted car that had been pushed over, you know, onto the coastline there in this you know, little bay. And it was an eyesore for years, and it marred the beauty of the area. That was my first experience hiking there. I saw this thing, and I was just horrified. But here's Joe Marshall. He said he was bothered by the unsightly abandoned rusted car, and he stepped up to get rid of it. We've been hiking out there for a number of years, my wife and I, and the first time we were out there, it's like, yeah, geez, it figures there's a car out here in this place where it shouldn't be. And, you know, it took a few years. It was probably three or four years later that, you know, I'm like, man, I'm really getting tired of looking at this thing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of it. It took several Saturdays from April to June to complete the job. He got the necessary permits to get access, and he hauled in a wheelbarrow of more than 100 pounds of equipment to begin cutting the rusted car frame. And he and other Good Samaritans hauled the pieces of metal out a mile and a half to dispose of in a dumpster. At the end of the first day when I was running out of gas and I I decided to leave, a gentleman by the name of David Garcia just walked by and he asked, hey, what are you doing? And I told him, gave him the lowdown on what was going on. He's like, can I help? And I'm like, well, I'm packing up today. I'm getting ready to go. He says, well, can I carry that ladder out for you? And I'm like, really? It's a mile and a half out to my truck. And that ladder weighs probably 45, 50 pounds. He, he's like, yeah, I'll carry it out. So he, he carried it out. He gave me his number. And he said, when you come back out, let me know. I'll come out. So he came out with me on the second, third, and fourth day and helped and it was just a chance passing by that day on the trail. So he was a great help. My son helped me out for three of the five days. And then on the fourth day, it was our volunteer day. My neighbor came out with a bunch of his friends. He's a retired Marine. He came out with about six or seven of his friends. And then Kakai Mar, he has a bunch of people who volunteer for all sorts of stuff with the state parks. He sent out a blast to them, and I had about eight or nine people from them show up, and I never even met these people before. So we had about 15 or 16 folks out on the the fourth day to help carry a majority of the things out. I just love this guy. He gets things done. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and Lindsay, you probably saw that car for years, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there, I mean, since I've started working out there, it used to be pretty common that you would have multiple cars before the gate was put in and the permit system. It was kind of where stolen cars went to die and were set Mm -hmm. fire to, quite honestly. So we'd seen a lot of that over the years. And so thankful to individuals who have stepped up to help remove those and clean it up. And just to kind of get back to the, the caller and wanted to thank him for acknowledging the progress, but also remind folks that this serves as a model. There are many other places in Hawaii that could use this, and it's possible to bring things back from sand-covered parking lots to these crown jewels where we use the literally the fruits that are coming off of the plants to restore other places. So it gives people hope and sort of inspiration to continue this work in other locations and expand on what's being done. Well, we have another caller, Mike from Kauai. Hi, Mike. Can you hear us? can hear you. Good morning. All right. So what's on your mind? <laughs> so just in concert with, with your subject matter, there is a, a new predator fence that just went up uh, at the Kilauea uh, lighthouse, actually Kahili Crater, and it's uh, it's it's wonderful to see it. Everybody's been concerned about the, uh, the predatory cats, and actually pigs have been in there as well, destroying some of the, the nests of the native birds. So this fence has gone up, and it's uh, it's been a little bit controversial, but definitely needed. And we've all noticed over the past why it is needed, with uh, a lot of different, as I said, a lot of nesting sites being destroyed all over the lighthouse, uh, and it's a wildlife refuge that's very sensitive and very open to pretty much any kind of predatory uh, advances. So this is something that is wonderful to see, although there's been a little bit of blowback from the visibility of it down to uh, Kahili Beach on the backside. But as I said initially, it's definitely a needed and warranted precedent over here for our our species. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mike, uh, for, for calling in. So I don't know, how many other predator fences do we have around the state? Do we know? Uh, it's 
between 8 and 11, depending on what you consider predator fence, there's sort of variations on it now. We have snail fences that are meant to protect against predatory snails and rats. We have cat fences that keep out cats and mongoose, but not rats. And then full predator exclusion fences um, that keep out everything. And Mike, thank you for calling in about the Kauai fence. We are also involved in building that and recognize that the initial build at the fence hood was a lot shinier than we'd anticipated. So we're in the, the process of painting that. But to demonstrate, you know, just the need at Kilauea Point, which did have a fence that was, you know, an ungulate fence, a pig fence. There was a small gap that was discovered in the fence. And over the holidays, several pigs got in and destroyed 70 plus albatross nests in just a period of a couple days over Christmas. And so all it takes is one puka in a fence to let something in and you can have catastrophic predation on an albatross nest like that or any sort of seabird or plant that's in there. And so these things are desperately needed on a, a larger scale. If you're just joining the conversation, you're listening to a rebroadcast. Our Hana Ho show originally aired on January 20th and we won't be taking any calls today. We have another call coming in from Wahewa. Kimmy. Hi, this is Kimmy Ferrara. Um, my husband and I were here over 10 years ago, and Kaina Point was a really special place for us to go hike and take our Jeep off early out there. And we're back on the island after leaving for a little over a decade, and it's special again to us. And we have two little kids now that we have strapped in two car seats in the back that we're taking them out and seeing families and people. So love it. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it's nice to see that, you know, people appreciate the, the efforts of all of these hands helping to protect this area. It, it is. And, you know, Lindsay, if you could, you talked about the hood, but if you could explain what that hood does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I get in the weeds and realize people don't realize it. So there's, if you think about a normal chain link fence that you might have, most things that can climb can climb over that. And so we put, it's almost like an inverted piece of gutter. If you think of flipping your the gutter on your roof and putting it on the top of the fence, that we call it the hood, um, protects or prevents things from climbing over it. And so that's kind of a key component to a predator fence design. Okay, and so that was just too shiny, too, what, glaring? Yeah, it, it was really shiny. This wasn't just like a, it, we took pictures like, wow, that's really blinding if that's going in your living room. And so we have experimented with various paint colors and have been working with residents to kind of resolve that. Okay. I just want to comment that the gentleman that removed the cars, I mean, that's mm -hmm. precisely what the natural heritage area is, the overlay is designed to do, which is to encourage community stewardship. So it's it's great. I mean, it's yeah. That that often gets misunderstood, and and I needed to walk through that with many people actually when we were going out to ask for their support uh, of this bill because it doesn't do any good to pass a bill through Congress if the community is just going to be outright opposed to it. And so we we spent a lot of time with especially the community that uh, considers kind of point really important from cultural perspectives. For example, uh, one question that came up was, well, if you designate this as a national heritage area, can I still go pole fish on kind of point? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, the answer is yes. It's going to be part of a managed use, but this is not something that you're out there to take away people's rights to go and, you know, cast a pole out and see whether there's any fish in the water. Yeah. So um, can, can they go out there for cultural practices? Of course. This is... There are more restrictive uh, um, reg regimens in our in our federal lands and waters system. I mean, Papua uh, Nuuakea is a good example of that. It needs to be uh, protected from really a maximal perspective to preserve uh, really a very unique and very very fragile um, ecosystem. And so and and that requires um, you know not having a whole bunch of access to it by a whole bunch of people. But there are gradations of that all the way along. And so in, in a points case, the, the National Heritage Area is designed for that community interaction. That com Federal government just kind of does an umbrella. It doesn't own the land. It, sometimes it does own the land um, or pieces of the land. But heritage areas are you know, state governments, like in this case. They can be private uh, land, um, if, if there's no problem with that from the private landowner's perspective. Um, as long as you have kind of a, an integrated, unique, uh, uh, example of uh, of a part of our national heritage um, that is, you know, what makes our country who we are, whether it's in a point or we designated some others a couple of months ago in uh, like one, for example, was to uh, try to um, highlight um, uh, African, the African history belt of Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. So that was more historical. 
and then you've got another one that's a little bit more environmental, and you've got another one that's a little bit more recreational. Kaena Point has everything. That's what's so cool about Kaena Point. Okay. And even when you get into the middle of the history of Kaena Point, like we've talked about the ancient history from pre-contact, and we've talked about it. But Kaena Point has a very interesting history in the 1800s, 1900s, when the sugar train went around Kaena Point. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that anymore. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, we have Kaena Point on our minds. This is a Hanaho broadcast of our show, originally aired in January. We aren't taking any calls today, but send feedback to our talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Mark Nepo author of The One Life We're Given. And next time on New Dimensions, I am very happy to be there talking about how we might craft the life of the soul. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. You're back with The Conversation, and we're talking about Kaena Point. In studio today, Lindsay Young with Pacific Rim Conservation, former state land director William Isla, and Congressman Ed Case. And, you know, I do want to bring up an unfortunate situation we had out there at Kaena Point where we had someone who was arrested for killing a number of albatross. Lindsay, can you talk about that, what that was like? Sure. So this was in 2016, and there were between three to six people involved in this. And we think about 30 adult albatrosses and about 17 nests. So not just like one or two are going to go do something dumb, but really interfering with the colony on a pretty large level. Um, so most of those individuals were juveniles. So they, you know, what happened to them is confidential, but there was one adult um, as part of that group. And he was prosecuted under Hawaii's environmental court, which was relatively new at that time, and was sent um, to jail for 45 days and then did community service after he served his time in jail. Yeah, and some of the people that were involved in that were minors, I believe. Yeah. So that was a, a concern because many school groups go out there, and so it was just really, I think, heartbreaking to think that someone could actually do the damage <coughs> that they did with the colony. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I just remember being horrified. <laughs> Well, and therein, you know, the practical reality is that that kind of a special case, as I think you said earlier, it's a merit system. Yeah, we're giving people access and relying on them not to, you know, use that access to destroy uh, the environment from that perspective. But a little bit of um, uh, enforcement of stewardship helps. And this umbrella and the funding that comes with it can provide that. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I think DLNR has one ded dedicated... Uh, person out at uh, kind of point that, um, and that's a long stretch of coastline. So it's a lot to, to you know, to manage, to, to watch, yeah. and it can stand uh, for a little bit more monitoring to be taking place. And William, you know, uh, we have seen 
trails get loved to death. And, you know, people might be worried with this designation. Are we going to bring more people out there? Will it be more tourists? And what do we do? Do we set up a reservation system, you know, so that we can kind of keep the numbers down and manage it? I think in the future we'll have to consider that. But for now, with the gate that's closed and only permitted access on the Waidua side and then the Kaena side not being able to access it from a vehicle, I think it's protected for now. We just need responsible tourism in the area. And so far, it looks like it's happening. But as as we all know, once a place gets popular, we all have to help enforce responsible behavior. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the purpose of the study that is going to be now kicked off. Um, not the only purpose, obviously, but um, one of the purposes is to anticipate that question and to ask ourselves the question, well, okay, what are the consequences here? Does this mean more visibility, popularity? How do we manage for that? And you know, sometimes people don't want to have that discussion because they just want the access or else they want to shut it down right away. But the point is that we need to talk about it now. And this is a very, very time-tested. We've got 64 National Heritage, 67 maybe, National Heritage areas. Every one of them has been through this process, um, some of them very large, some of them very small, uh, some of them more complicated than others. So there's a track record of trying to set up a tailored stewardship regime it's going to work for Kaena Point. So who's doing the studies? Well, it's going to be facilitated and paid for by the Department of the Interior National Park Service. Okay. Will you be involved in, in all this? Yes, she will be involved in this. Oh. Okay, yes, I will be. News <laughs> <laughs> to you. Yeah. I think something to point out, though, we definitely don't want it to be loved to death. And I think something that those of us that work in conservation tend to forget is that we're very privileged to work in areas that are closed to the public, such as the the Marine National Monument and these kind of crown jewels of our country that not everyone has access to. And I think the beauty of Kaena Point is that everyone does have access to it. And I think that's so important for people to be able to see and visit these success stories. And, you know, you brought up the, the incident that happened with these boys out there. That really catalyzed people. It got a lot of people very, very upset. And, you know, I don't care to relive any of that, but it did really spawn ownership of that place. And the great thing is when I'm out there, you know, I'm studying albatross, I'm walking around with a clipboard, you know, sometimes touching birds, I get people yelling at me. And that actually makes me really happy because they're thinking, like, you are not supposed to be there. This is a place for the birds. Why are you in there? And I'm permitted and trained to do all of that. But people started to really watch out for the place and take care of it. So there was a silver lining that came out of that, and that's because they're able to visit and able to participate in the stewardship. Yeah, they want to protect it. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, I do want to talk about, you know, climate change is really, really important, but in 2011, when the predator-proof fence was actually completed, there was a tsunami in Japan, and that tsunami impacted a year class of birds, um, seabirds, up in Papahanaumokuakea and many other low-lying areas. So we also have to be cognizant of the fact that it's really, really important in case there's another tsunami that impacts you know, the recruitment of a whole year's worth of, of baby birds throughout Papahanaumokuakea and other low-lying areas. Mm-hmm. You know, at one time I know the military was eyeing an area there near Kaena Point, for, I think, for the radar system. And I think they've retreated from that, but I worried about what impacts all that activity no, might the, have. No, what you're referring to is the ridge above mm-hmm. uh, Kaena. So there are existing installations there. You can see them from the air, but they don't interfere with Kaena Point down below. I, I, don't, I don't know what the elevation is. It's probably 2,000 feet above there. Um, so that, that particular ridge which was at one time being considered, but is not being considered right. for kind of the next generation of defensive radar for Hawaii. That's off the table. But the military installations will continue up there and should continue from my perspective. But they're, they're distinct from Kaena Point and the designated study area for this national heritage. But I'm wondering, too, just because there's a military installation, maybe that helps to kind of protect that area, right? Because you don't have other alternate... Well, access, yeah, access access certainly yeah, is, yeah. I wouldn't say it's completely restricted, but it's difficult. Uh, you have to get a permit from forestry if you're going to go up there to hike, uh, if you're going to go up there to hunt. Um, so it is controlled, which helps. Yeah, and then I know, you know, when it uh, gets very hot in the summer, there's always the concern about fires and protecting, uh, you know, what we've got out there and the progress that we've made. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Have you seen any issues with fires at all? 
Uh, there have been a few fires over the years. The ones in that area are, are typically intentionally set, unfortunately. But one of the good things is because it's mostly grassland, they tend to burn really quick and hot, and they don't do the same level of damage as like a true forest fire where you have trees that are smoldering. So we've been really fortunate that it hasn't hit them, but it's not to say it won't in the future. And you talked about the forestry. Is there any way to, I don't know, add more trees? Because <laughs> it is hot and, and there's not a lot of shade when you go hiking over there, but I don't know. Well, I think, I think the idea is to allow it to return to its natural state. I don't know what its natural state was 200 years ago. I don't know what the you know, vegetation was like. But um, I do know that a good stewardship that includes predator fences that keep out the other invasive species that um, devastate native forests and native ecosystems, sometimes it's pretty remarkable what you see over time. I was really privileged to walk through uh, Haleakala about two months ago or something like that. And I came out the Kaupo Gap, and the Kaupo Gap is the backside of Haleakala. It's a, that particularly um, utilized from a hiking perspective, which is more on the other side. And when you come out of Kaupo, um, you have the national park on one side, and then you have a, a ranch, because uh, that was all ranch land on the, on the backside, Kaupo side. And they put in a predator fence 40 years ago. And on the Haleakala side, which was part of the ranch in the old days before it got taken over by the park, amazing what you see after 40 years of a native ecosystem recovering species that hadn't been seen there for a long, long time. Um, and you contrast that to the other side uh, of, a, of a working ranch and, and you know, the, the pig and, and all of the other ungulates that cruise around in there and can't get into the ranch anymore. And so I, I'm, I'm just noting this because, you know, we've only been about 12, 13 years into maybe more full-on protection of, of Kaena Point. So I don't know what the natural um, natural state, state of that is, but if we keep it up, we'll find out. Mm -hmm. I think most coastal ecosystems are not full of big trees yeah. because it's not, you know, they're, they're usually dry. And so salt water, salt water, windblown. So sorry, you don't get any more shade. You've got to take it naturally. Okay. <laughs> Just wear a lot of sunscreen and bring your water, right? Mm -hmm. Gosh, I don't know. We've only got, you know, a few minutes left of the show, but anything else that you think, you you know, final thoughts about what you would like to leave our listeners with? I guess I would encourage people to go out there and see it for yourself if you haven't and take that mental snapshot of what it looks like because it truly is a representation of what a lot of these coastal ecosystems in our Marine National Monument look like and in some cases are trying to achieve what Kaena has achieved. They might have more birds than us right now, but we've got sort of the better habitat than them. And we hope in the future that there are so many birds that they start to spill out of the reserve. We want that same sort of overflow situation that we have with the plants and the seeds right now to actually happen with the birds, to have them populate other areas and have that be um, a source population in the future. Okay. Well, we've yeah, got about three minutes. Anything you want to well, add? Go out you? there in a safe place, in a safe position, close your eyes, listen to the sea breeze blowing, mm -hmm. feel the heat of Kaena, listen to the birds. And just be grateful that you're experiencing something that people a thousand years ago experienced. Mm -hmm. I wish I could stop after him. Because, <laughs> uh, I, I don't have any way of bettering that. I think it is as a practical matter, uh, just so everybody knows. So the process now is that we have now triggered the study that has to happen before you designate a national heritage area. It'll be a couple of years. It'll, be, it'll fully involve the community. Um, it will review all of the attributes of, of Kaena Point from historical to cultural to, you know, spiritual to resource and beyond. And I think it will document uh, very thoroughly the, the fact that this is, uh, in fact, a, a unique part of our, represents a unique part of our country's uh, heritage from a lot of different angles. And um, I think, again, it is about as good a candidate as I can think of for um, broader stewardship of special places and not just the place itself but the idea that we can in fact steward our special places and we can in fact reverse um, you know cultural um, uh, norms whether it be you know big tires in in a very precious place to uh, not valuing the 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 monk seals around us you know uh, we can all um, so I, I'm really excited about this I mean you know it's Congress is sometimes a grind, but every once in a while, uh, something like this happens, and you go, wow, that was really cool. 
Yeah, so, so it's a nice way to start uh, 2023, knowing that uh, we may have our very first heritage site protected. And then, you know, and I don't know, were there other sites on the list? Well, I mean, we, <laughs> um, Congressman Kahele and I, you know, we're both from Hawaii Island, and we both consider a part of Hawaii Island very special, which is South Kona. Uh, we both um, have have deep uh, personal experiences, and this is the area that, if you think about it, uh, south of Miloli'i on on down to uh, Kalai, uh, or South Point, we actually introduced the heritage area, South Kona Heritage Area, as well. Kaina Point was just a better a better fit for this time around, but you know I hope to pursue some kind of special protection there because it has many of the same attributes. Yeah, no, that would be great. I mean, I don't know, any other sites from any other islands? Because it just seems like every island's got something awesome that should be protected. Yeah, I mean, I my focus also, going back to something I said at the beginning, is we also have the National Forest now to work on. And I'm excited about that because uh, we have some of the most unique native forests in the entire world. We have some of the only tropical forests, first of all, in our entire country. And for our unique forests, hardly any of them are left, so they need really uh, incredible protection to go back to the the ways they were pre-contact. And so I'm kind of stewarding two now through the administrative process. Both of them will serve the same basic function, which is to protect our Hawaii, which is part of my real passion in Congress. Okay, well, we'll have to have you back and talk about forests. Okay, is that a deal? Sure. <laughs> All right. And then, yeah, because uh, there are just so many on the various islands, and we would love to have our listeners chime in. We are out of time today. We'd like to thank our guests, Lindsay Young, William Isla, and Representative Ed Case, and our super volunteer, Joe Marshall and Friends. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us on this Hanaho rebroadcast. That's it for this Aloha Friday, but stay tuned. Coming up next week, we'll have stories about adaptive reuse. Do you know about a building that's been put to new use? Give us a call at 808-792-8217. Our program is produced by Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. You can find our archive shows online on our website or by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up The Conversation.